everybody, welcome on back to King of the Ride podcast. As always, I am your host. I am Ted King, and I thank you very much for tuning in. Today's guest on King of the Ride, the good Dr. Kevin Sprouse, lead team physician on EF Education First, Dropic, powered by Cannondale. And don't you forget that name because you may hear it early on in today's show. Certainly one of the longer names in the Pro Peloton. Anyway, Kevin is the team doc for EF. He was a team doctor in my final year racing back in 2015. Definitely one of the good guys. Kevin is one of the most curious, thoughtful, interesting guys in the roving circus that is the Pro Peloton. Truth be told, I learned plenty about him in this conversation, even after having worked with him for an entire year. I learned about his introduction and time in the sport. And sure, we're going to talk about cycling. We're going to talk about his role in the sport of cycling. We're going to talk about our recent King of the Ride guest, Lawson Craddock, hero of the 2018 Tour de France, as it was Kevin taking care of our friendly Texan. Trust me when I say it, this conversation goes way, way beyond one or two people. We're going to talk about the state of his team, America's team, the state of cycling, the state of sports in general. We're going to talk politics. We're going to talk world travels. Folks, Kevin and I go deep in this conversation in King of the Ride, and I know you're going to dig it. So what else is going on? Oh, settling into Vermont is definitely going on. Man, it just it just occurred to me that I haven't updated our listeners on the fact that Laura and I bought a house, and not just any house. We're proud owners of a farmhouse here in Vermont that has not just one We have two barns. So, Laura and I are graciously accepting suggestions as what it is we should do to make use of these barns. We we have a handful of things in storage. We definitely have some bike rooms going on. We don't have any cattle, but we're certainly open to that suggestion. We've been suggested to store boats. I don't know why we shouldn't store boats. We have we have plenty of opportunities. We're already keen to host some fat bike racing this winter. We have 10 acres of rolling Vermont farmland in which to rally around. Foliage is beginning to peak as we speak. Man, oh man, we are in heaven. So, lastly, in the what else is going on category, I was just out in California one week ago for Grinduro. I may have taken the overall win, but best yet... We are winning the fun competition. What an amazing all-weekend affair. Grinduro is this cool festival on two wheels, smack in the middle of nowhere in Quincy, California. You got live music, you have food trucks, you have some really great breweries, you have camping, you have RVing, you have glamping. You name it, it is happening in Quincy. Anyway, after a long weekend in Quincy, I made it back east, got to settle into the house for a few more days, brought my parents in, showed them around. It's now back out to California for a few more events. And then among the really cool things on the horizon, we have King Challenge just around the corner, folks. October 20th, kingchallenge.org. Definitely check that out. We're raising funds for the Kremple Center. That's an organization dedicated to improving the lives of those with brain injury. It's, It's hard to believe that my dad's stroke was 15 years ago and that we're now in year eight our eighth annual King Challenge. Please check that out. Again, kingchallenge.org. And on your immediate horizon is my conversation with Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Lastly, as always, I accept your comments, your questions, your suggestions. Please suggest what you'd like to see us do with our barn. Send all those things to all things I am Ted King on social media. If you have it in you, it's incredibly helpful that you hit subscribe on the podcast. And lastly, whatever means it is you are listening to, I ask that you leave a review as as I can't tell you how helpful that is. Ladies and gentlemen, please and thank you. Without further ado, Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Sitting down here in beautiful Walland, Tennessee, Blackberry Farm, sitting down with Dr. Kevin Sprouse, team physician for EF Dropic, presented by Cannondale. That Is that close. correct? N- no. Powered by? Powered by. Okay. And it's EF Education First Dropac, powered by Cannondale. You've you're well spoken. You've you've probably had to correct a person or two about that. 
Myself included. Yeah. It's well, a long one. All right. Does EF Education First, is that is that their proper name, EF Education First? It is. And EF does not stand for Education First. Whew. Please explore that. Yeah. So um, I learned this at, at team camp. Uh-huh. EF is a a Swedish, it stands for a Swedish term, which I'm not going to, nor could I repeat. Mm-hmm. But EF stands for the Swedish term that has to do with education. Oh. And, and then education first is mm-hmm. kind of like the, like the secondary title. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'm a fan of it because they support the American cycling team, EF education first. And on top of that, their Boston company, well, their, yeah. their U.S. headquarters are there in Boston. A um, handful of friends who, who work there. Uh, prominent company doing great things. And I think, I think there's some tremendous hope and promise for American cycling as a result of their participation in the sport. I mean, they're not... I explained that they're not a fly-by-night operation because you look at their success. I mean, you know, they, they support America's Cup sailboat racing, which... I think there's probably more money in a single sale than there is in a in a professional cycling team. Yeah, EF is a it's a massive company, and yeah. I'll be honest, I'd I'd seen the logo and kind of I didn't didn't really know what the company was before they you know saved our team. Yeah, and then you start hearing about them, and they are huge. They're in I, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but the gist is they're in 120, 130 countries, mm-hmm. fifty thousand employees. Whoa. I mean, massive company. So when you bring that expertise, uh-huh. like you said, not a fly-by-night organization, when you bring that expertise to cycling, I think there's a lot that we can gain from it. Sure. Aside from just saving the team. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, endemic aspects of cycling. You know, people are, they are bike racers who go on to become sports directors, which is wonderful because they have that wealth of knowledge, but there's certainly a lot to be learned outside of the sport of cycling to help develop the sport of cycling. Because as we talked about last night, professional cycling is unfortunately the, one of the biggest amateur sports on the planet. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of promise and potential and, and it's good to glean things elsewhere. Yeah. For, as, as a business model, there's, there's room for improvement, right? Sure. And, well and when, <laughs> when, in any business venture, when you get somebody from the outside who's been successful and can look at it with fresh eyes, I think there's a lot to be gained. There's there's also some misunderstanding that comes, mm-hmm. and I don't say that with any thought of anything that's happened on the team this year, just truly in general. Mm-hmm. You know, you've also got to educate that outside influence about the specifics of cycling or whatever it is that's being looked at. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a give and take, and I think that conversation goes a long way because one, you get you get the outside in, input, but two, from the inside, you have to explain what you do and why and be able to back it up. Yep. And a lot of times that can be done, but sometimes you start down that explanation, you're like, well, wait a minute, this maybe this isn't the best way. Yeah. So it forces you to, on, on multiple planes, to kind of examine what you do and why. Well said. I mean, right, there's so much that, that about cycling that is routine. They do year after year that, that a person's job is done in the same way or with very little variation year after year, generation after generation. And I imagine it'd be hard to explain that to somebody who is, who is non-endemic. Anyway, well, let's take a, a, a broad step back. Let's talk about um, your introduction to medicine first. I'm, I'm always fascinated by, by a person's path to medicine. Uh, my father was an orthopedic surgeon. My brother is ooh, three quarters of the way through medical school. Um, much like the path of a person into the sport of cycling, the path of a person into medicine is, is definitely interesting. So Dr. Kevin Spouse, tell me about your introduction to medicine. Sure. Yeah. So, so my path was a little circuitous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's more and more doctors who have maybe interesting or at least unusual stories, how they got here. But when, so I did undergraduate studying exercise science, exercise physiology, biomechanics, um, without a real clear idea of what I was going to do with that. I just knew I liked it. And then I graduated college and I kind of, I worked a little bit in the medical field kind of for part of the year. And then I would go off and be a backcountry guide where I would do backpacking, whitewater rafting, rock climbing, sea kayaking. Very cool. Um, All over the place or were you in a particular 
geography? I've spent one summer in Colorado and one summer in like Washington and Oregon. Nice. Um, Good spots. Is great. And so I spent a couple years doing that kind of not very academic, just seeing what I wanted to do and eventually came around to the idea that, yeah, I wanted to do medicine. Um, went to medical school, uh, from there went to residency in New York city, uh, mm-hmm. doing emergency medicine. Where was, sorry, where was med school? Med school is Virginia tech. Nice. Yep. And where was undergrad? Wake forest in North Carolina. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. And so I ended up initially, I thought I wanted to do orthopedics. Um, but for me, I didn't like the monotony of having a specialty that was like one joint being the knee guy yeah. or the hip guy, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is fantastic. I mean, the guys that do that, they're amazing at what they do, but I'm, I'm too ADD, I think. Uh, so, so is there no way to be, uh, my, my father was a, uh, uh, upper extremity guy. Yeah. Oh, hand specialty. Could you be, <laughs> it probably doesn't make sense. You can't specialize in head to toe. You can't be like, no, you can, you can, you can do general orthopedics and that's kind of what the residency is. And then, but, but the trend is, especially in bigger cities, bigger markets that the majority of, of orthopedists do their residency and then a fellowship in hand or, or shoulder or knee or whatever. Makes sense. Sounds like my dad. Yeah. Thank you for bringing me back up to speed on that. Yep. And so, you know, for me, I, I, found it fascinating, but I realized it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So emergency medicine was, gave me a chance to do things across the board. You know, whatever walks through the door, you got to take care of it. You know, it, one minute you're delivering a baby, the next time you're fixing a broken hip, sure. setting it back in place. The next moment you're, you know, dealing with a heart attack and then there's a kid who swallowed a battery, right? <laughs> so you're just, you got to do it all. Yeah. Um, and that appealed to me. Uh, and then during my emergency medicine residency, is when I started to focus on sports as a potential, you know, doing a fellowship and making that a, a career choice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when you, okay, you, you start steering towards sports medicine, which I think there's often the misunderstanding that sports medicine means that you are purely dealing with, with high level elite athletes, professional athletes, and you can certainly go in that track and become a physician for a professional sports team, which at that point I imagine is not your plan. Right. And the misunderstanding being like, if you do sports medicine, it means you're doing a whole lot of hips for people who are arthritic. Yeah. So in in the U S a lot of sports medicine is really non-operative orthopedics, Mm -hmm. um, which is a lot of arthritis and, you know, weekend warriors, um, which is fantastic. But again, looking at what I, I knew I wanted to do, especially with the background in exercise physiology and exercise science, yeah. is I wanted to be able to bring that to my patients and, and use that side of what I learned. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, most sports medicine doctors don't work with a whole lot of elite athletes. They may have a, a couple that they see or maybe a team that they work with mm-hmm. um, sparingly. Um, and my practice is just because of the, I think because of the interest that I have in the way that I I directed it. It's kind of the other way around. I work with a, a lot of elite athletes and, um, and then, you know, obviously a handful too of, of recreational and, and even non-athletes who are interested in wellness and exercise as kind of a beneficial lifestyle choice. And then jump into your practice itself, which is, uh, podium sports. Yep. Podium sports medicine. So podium sports medicine here in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, talk about that in terms of setting up a practice, which is no small feat, um, in, in, in relative to the timeline of how you ended up getting connected to the team sure. and, and how, you know, a cool story about how you connected with this guy, Dr. Prentice Stefan. Yeah. So, um, one of the, I guess, serendipitous parts of this whole thing was when I was in residency, um, which is generally a fairly hellish experience for most doctors who go through it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this period during my second year of residency where I had worked um, about a 36-hour shift, uh, which is not legal anymore. I was about to um, ask about that. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. That is, they say it's cut out. Does it still exist? Uh, it, Maybe they they th- say it's cut out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Good. It's, um, that's no, it, it still happens. Okay. Um, I think it, it happens less so, but yeah, yeah there's there's still a lot of overworking. And so it had been one of those nights where I'd worked all day, all night, part of the next day. Um, 
And I remember going home and I was the, there was an experience I had had that I don't want to get into patient confidentiality issues, <laughs> but it was in New York and they uh-huh. sometimes run into some, some well-known and interesting characters, colorful individuals, colorful yep. folks. Um, and I'd had kind of this very interesting interaction overnight for an extended, you know, spent the whole night with this, with this gentleman who was ultimately passing away and, um, you know, having that conversation and, and the stress of dealing with it all and you get home and, and just kind of done with medicine, you know, just, I get back and I'm like, why am I doing this? It's ridiculous. Were you really questioning, like, were you properly questioning, am I going to pursue this? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Transformative. And I would honestly, I mean, have you ever had a time in cycling where you're like, you know, is this is really what I want to do? Why am I doing this? Yeah. Uh, no shortage of those. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I can so, so I don't down. think it's a, you know, I, I'm happy to admit that and there were more than one. Uh-huh. You know, I think any time that you pour yourself into something like that, um, there are big ups and downs. Uh-huh. And so it was one of those downs. Yep. And I remember going back to our apartment and I was having this kind of internal questioning, internal, you know, strife over whether I wanted to do this. And, and I was so tired. I couldn't sleep. Okay. Right. And so I turned on the tour. I was like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> watch, watch some racing and, and just kind of enjoy having half a day off before I got to be back at it tomorrow. Um, and so they interviewed Prentice Stefan, who is a doc, uh, for the, the team that I'm with now, but you know, going back to slipstream and Garmin and mm-hmm. all the way through. And he talked about his, his history in medicine and the sport and, um, Prentice is, he's a legend. Yeah. I mean, he's been around. My word. Long, long time. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, it makes him sound really old. Sorry, Prentice. Um, but he's just. Long enough that he he was a team doc for seemingly eons, but for many generations of exactly what you said. Like that team has had many iterations. Call yeah. it Slipstream, call it Garmin, call it Sharp, whatever the heck you want to call it. Uh, yeah, we overlapped in mm-hmm. my one year under that operation. And yeah, yeah the man's got a history in the sport. Yeah. And so, um, he was a real mentor to me and, and the way it started was I literally saw the interview and I was like, well, God, I could do that. Like he's an ER doc and mm-hmm. we've got kind of some similar backgrounds and I love the sport. I was like, I wonder how that happened. So I literally got on the website, found his email, emailed him crazy, totally expecting not to hear anything back. Like mm-hmm. just, I'll throw it out there. And, um, he wrote back and it, I don't even know if he remembers the story. I'm going to have to have this conversation with him. <laughs> he wrote back and he's like, look, I just landed in California. I'm driving to my house in Napa. I'm in the car for whatever, whatever that is, an hour. Yeah. He's like, if you can chat now, we'll talk. And so we got on the phone, talked, kind of, you know, had had a pleasant conversation. Um, and he was very helpful to me. And we kind of hit it off. And I was like, well, what if I come out and meet you? Come to the tour of California and just see what you do one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there we stayed in touch. And then when I was in fellowship, they needed somebody for their development team to be the team doc, no but, but it was great for them to get a free doctor. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm still, still studying and my fellowship program says, well, if, you know, was kind enough to say, yeah, if you, we can make this an academic experience, like we'll make your team coverage of the Chipotle team, uh-huh. part of your learning experience. Who was on that team then? Uh, that was Alex Howes was on yep. that team. Jacob Rathy. Yep. Um, Lachlan. No kidding. Um, how about, uh, uh, Fairley? Caleb Fairley. Fairley. Caleb was on that team. Um, was it one year? How many years did you do that? I was there one year. Okay. Um, man, oh man. Yeah. I imagine the majority of those riders went on to domestic or international yeah. professional contracts. Yeah. It was really fun. And, and to still see a lot of those guys. Absolutely. Um, you know, Alex, I've worked with Alex House. I've worked with from the time I got into the sport. So mm-hmm. we're talking ten-ish years, mm-hmm. nine, ten years. Um, so t- to kind of follow along his career, um, that's been fun to have one person who's there the whole time. Yeah, no, definitely long-standing uh, 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 team member of the slipstream operation. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But but what I found out that was really interesting, and not until I got into this position, was how many of those like cold call emails are sent by docs who huh. are like. Oh, this looks like a cool job. How do I get into that? Sure. Um, and we get them, especially in the summer, fairly regularly. Especially in the month of July, maybe. Yeah, oh, oh, for sure. So you are you're the the head team doc. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Um, with how many 
how many physicians working under the Slipstream uh, um, banner head, let's call it? Yeah, each year we have pretty much either four or five, depending on the the calendar and who's going to be covering the races and whatever. And there's not a whole lot of turnover there. Right now we've got four of us, me and three others, uh-huh. two of them in Europe, two in the U.S. Um, and I think it's a fantastic team. I mean, they're nice. guys that that make me look good, which is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what you want. <laughs> that's teamwork. Oh, they're 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 great. Nice. Um, and so you know, we've had in the last three or four years a little bit of turnover. Um, and some of the guys you worked with probably aren't there anymore. Okay. And, and I mean, that was a very long time ago in 2015. Yeah, way long time ago. <laughs> And not for any reason, except, you know, sure. it, there's a lot of travel and family and job mm-hmm. requirements mm-hmm. in the hospital and whatnot. Um, but I think we've got a really solid team right now that I hope stays around. Sure. And how, how often when you get those emails throughout the summer, does one actually, you know, stand out the diamond in the rough to be like, oh, yo, we, we do need to talk to this guy. Or is it, is it zero? Or is it, is it as often as you realize that, yeah, in two years, we're going to need a new team doc? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the guys are well-qualified. And a lot aren't. You actually, the, the UCI has added some some wording in their rules hmm. to where docs now have to have certain training. They have to be sports trained, which was not the case in the past. Um, <laughs> Different generation. Yep. <laughs> um, you got a lot of OBGYNs and, you know. You're kidding. Other, no. No, no. Like sure, if, if you right. knew if you knew the owner of the team or yeah. like, you know, some of the race docs were not probably trained appropriately have i mentioned biggest amateur sport on the planet okay i'm (laughs) glad to hear that there are there are leaps and bounds being made excellent yeah for sure so now now there's certain qualifications up front that have to be met um and so that's the initial kind of threshold and then i do i keep the the ones that are you know have good training have good history um just seem like you know in the in the email interaction or or phone call interaction that Mm -hmm. would be fun to work with sure because that's a big part of it yeah you know i keep a folder on the computer and you know should we need somebody yep yep yep. dig into it that's very cool now talk about that exact thing the 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 aspect of a team uh on the medical side and and beyond the medical side so you know you go to race for a particular team captain, you're going to a sprint stage, and, and so you got seven guys working for one particular sprinter, you got a hill hill stage, you got a GC rider, whatever the particular race is, you got the whole team working for a particular rider. What is often not seen is how big a team is um, yeah. beyond the bicycle. Uh, you know, you're often sending easily one-to-one rider to staff, but then, you know, one-to-two rider to staff, one-to-three, one-to-four at the bigger races. So... I mean, I suppose walk me through walk me through a normal day, um, sure. and then let's delve into you know particular days like who knows maybe t- stage one Tour de France twenty eighteen right that was a so good one. that was a big one so let's yeah talk about <laughs> um, a normal day and how you're interacting with both the, the riders and your other staff members yeah so um, you're right there's a big staff presence and what what I think is often forgotten is that it's just as much my job to take care of them on the road and off the road mm-hmm. um, and, and keep them healthy because that impacts the riders and the team results. Oh, and ultimately it's the right thing to do. I mean, we're kind of a family on the road, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, the, the patient base that is traveling for us as doctors is everybody that's there. Yeah. Um, a normal day generally is going to be for me up around six ish in the morning. Um, uh, I like to go for a run. Try to do something active. Yeah, a lot of stuff <laughs> is out running when the rest of the riders are sleeping. Yeah, and that's the best time to do it because you know we'll, we're needed at other times. But you know, I I go for a run. I encourage the other staff to do something active because the rest of our day is is pretty much all work. Um, so go for a run, come back. I usually try to come back in time that you know should we have uh, testing, you know, have control in the morning yeah, that, that yeah. I'm there for it. Mm-hmm. Um, is it mandatory? That the doctor's there? Yeah. No. Okay. But so, it's, I mean, to paint that picture real quick, yeah, you'll often wake up as a rider and there's a staff member knocking on your door earlier than you wish to be sleeping and quite frankly recovering, you know, getting ready for the next day or that, that stage ahead. To say that you need to donate some pee or some blood and they're going to test you and yeah, every time it would be often a doctor, not always in, in a swan year and yeah. be like, oh man, all right. Let's yeah, and, and to your credit, I mean, mostly across the board, that's that's approached with a good attitude mm-hmm. and understanding that it's sure. 
ultimately a, I mean, ultimately a good thing, you know, keeping, keeping yes. everybody honest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, we try to have the doctor there for that. Um, just because if there's, if there's any questions or concerns about procedure or anything that comes mm-hmm. up, we're the ones that kind of deal with that and are on top of it. And to be honest, that's, I mean, the, the, the times that I'm needed for that are few and far between. Yeah. No, it is very boilerplate. No. But, and I, but I think the riders also in that scenario like to have, you know, someone there. Sure. Um, so, you know, in case that happens, we're around and then, and then there's uh uh, staff breakfast, mm-hmm. which is well before the riders, mm-hmm. and then rider breakfast. And I usually try to be around without being um, like forcing myself on uh, you know conversations <laughs> early in the morning as you guys stumble down. Yeah. So you know I may be doing some work or answering emails or something where you can see me as you walk in, yeah. sipping a coffee. And if you need something, I'm there. But if not, you just walk right past. Which is a far cry. I mean, I want to interject to say that I had a very oppressive team doctor. I had a Handful of oppressive team doctors at, at the uh, liquid gas operation. Yeah. And less so at races, but definitely at team camps. Like they would literally stand over the, the, the breakfast table or lunch table or dinner table and just watch you like a hawk. Yeah. And Kevin, you are a cool guy. And if you were to ever watch me like a hawk while I ate, I bet we would strike up a conversation and talk about something <laughs> cool rather than being, you know, the, the feeling of, of as if you're. Definitely being overseen. Anyway, okay, yes, I, I appreciate that that uh, being present from afar. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I preach to all the docs um, is that we want to be present and available, mm-hmm. and but not like constantly inserting ourselves into the day to day. Sure. And so, with that in mind, that kind of maybe informs how the rest of the day goes. You know, we'll after after the guys eat, it'll be getting on the bus, going to the stage start. Um, I generally ride on the bus with the riders again, just to be present. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes we're talking about a news story or, I mean, things that are totally unrelated, but mm-hmm. that way, you know, if, if there's something that needs to be addressed and there's, you know, a concern or, Hey, I'm not feeling well, a lot of times it's, it's, I've got sniffles or my stomach doesn't feel right this morning, yeah. you know, little things. Um, cyclists are a finicky bunch, but it's important when those things aren't aren't firing on all cylinders. Oh, for sure. It can really impact your race. Mm -hmm. Um, so just being present for that and being able to handle it without the riders having to say, Hey, where's doc? Where's doc? And somebody's got to track him down or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just being present. So get to the race again, kind of hang out around the bus, around the start, just be there, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with whatever comes up, sit in the race car during the day for the most part. Um, Riding shotgun, talking to Char- uh, Charlie and and Andreas and Juanma, mm-hmm. listening to stories and good folks. Yeah, we have, we have a good time. I've never actually sat in the team car for a race. I mean, I'm picturing you know you're driving at twenty to twenty five to to fifteen miles an hour. You're interacting with other cars. Is that interesting? Is it dynamic, or is it only dynamic during a particular riveting part of the race? Is it boring? It. Is often boring. Okay. I um, imagine it would be. It kind of depends on what number you have, what car number you have. Absolutely. So yep. if you're car number 21 mm-hmm. and you're in the back, you don't see the race. Yeah. Like I, I, my kid will text me updates about the race because, because, you know, oh, unless we have TV service in the car, <laughs> like yeah. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So he'll, he'll be like, did you just see that? I was like, nope. Is TV service it. allowed back in race in car? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And is that a, do you think that's an advent of modern technology? I mean, there was at one point they, they banned the, the dashboard TV. Right. And then there was a time they said, okay, you can put the TV in the back seat because then the driver's not watching. I mean, I trust director sportifs behind the wheel more than most people because, you know, they're driving with one hand, they're on the phone, the other hand, talking to other teams, they're talking to the mechanic, they're yelling out the window. They're, there's so much going on. I'll tell you, there's, there's less of that. incredibly safe. Okay. There's less Good. of that. Um, and probably in the last year or two, there's, there's less talking on the phone, there's less... Um, oh. I mean, they really realize, at least in the cars I ride in, yeah. that um, that driving needs to be that number one thing. And then they're on cool. the radio and, and doing stuff. But a lot of the other tasks are delegated. So it's, you know, they may hand me their phone and be like, hey, will you text so-and-so and tell them this? Or, <laughs> text, yeah. text the chef. I want right. <laughs> I want a grilled cheese when I get back to the hotel. Okay. So I, I feel like that's gotten a lot safer. Yep. So fast forward to the finish line. 
Um, where are you there? Where where are you interacting with the Swannies, the mechanics, the riders? At the finish line, if you know if if we win or if one of the guys gets pulled for a random control, then it's back into the control area mm-hmm. um, for for testing. Um, and then otherwise, again, it's just being around at the finish. I usually try to check in with each guy, and that may just be, "Hey, how'd you feel? How you doing?" And good, and they're mm-hmm. on the bus, mm-hmm. done. But just enough that they know I'm there. If they need something, if they have a question, like, you know, it's, there's someone they can ask. Sure. And then hopping on the bus and riding back to the hotel again for the same reason, like just present. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, you know, the conversations have nothing to do with anything medical. Um, It's, it's just being there. Yeah. It's funny because the good days are the days you're not working. Yeah. Things are flowing smoothly. You're not caring for a rider you're not on the side of the road you're not trying to coordinate going to that hospital figuring out where the hospital is how to coordinate with the team so let's jump into stage one of the tour de france um how many tours have you done this is my sixth your sixth tour de france stage one um lawson craddock guest on the 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 second to last episode we've just done um great guy he takes a little tumble yeah. Tell me about that. So, um, at that stage, I was not in the car, okay. um, which often happens at the tour because there's more sponsors and VIPs and all that. So I was at the finish line. The tour is a, f- uh, chaos was the word Lawson used yeah. many times over. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a different animal. Yeah. Um, so I was at the finish and I hear, you know, that Lawson has crashed, but he's back on his bike. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So we're watching the TV coverage in the bus. Um, and you know, we're getting kind of spotty pictures as satellite, pic- you know, satellite TV is. So we'll, we'll get yeah. maybe a little video and then a few stills and, you know, see that it's not looking good mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, he's got the blood all over his face sure. and all this stuff. So quite badass, but yeah, good. So I call the the race doctor. Um, who's, cool. She's been doing this for years. Yep. Um, just call her up from the bus and say, hey, I see Lawson's pulling up to your car. Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And she said, I'll call back in a minute and I'll tell you. So she, she sees him and, and he rides off and I call back and she's like, I, I think he's, um, maybe separated his shoulder. Maybe there's a fracture. I'm not sure, but, uh, no concussion. He's fine to keep going. I was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. You know, so I plan to meet him there at the finish. Um, so I go down and basically there as he comes across the finish line, uh, you know, again, dried blood kind of using one arm to to get there and then he has control <laughs> oh right that was brutal yeah yeah control yeah. meaning he's got to go pee in a cup exactly yeah yeah so he he's got to go for doping control crazy um which i mean i, I can't say enough i was upset about that mm-hmm. and lawson was just like no that's fine we'll do it and, yeah and then go on. it's like no you need an x-ray like i think you have something broken nuts he's just like no no it's how it has to be done uh-huh. so he had a much better attitude about that than i did um <laughs> Good work, Lawson. Admittedly. Uh-huh. And so we do that and then uh, go over to the x-ray truck, which is something that not all the races have. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, certainly not. The tour is, you know, this is where all the chaos of the tour produces something a little nice. So we've got this this uh, truck that has x-ray, ultrasound. There's ER docs, trauma docs, like specialists in there. Um, so we go in and get an x-ray, get an ultrasound, determine that he's got a fracture of the spine of the scapula mm-hmm. um, and also can take a look at his rotator cuff and all that and see that he hasn't torn anything. That I mean, We really nice. get a good view of the injury, basically. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, you know, and we got his eye sewed up, which was a dramatic injury because of all the dried blood, but yeah. really was not, it was never really a limiter. He was Agreed. fine with that. Yeah. And so not, not concussed, not, not concussed. Yeah. No. In fact, I mean, he has, <laughs> this sounds weird he to say it this way. <laughs> eyebrows? No. <I'm laughs> no, no. I was going to say kidding. he doesn't remember hitting his head, Yeah. but, but the key is he, he didn't hit his head. I, I kind of think that on the way down, he caught it on. So it was more of a laceration yeah. than an impact. Brutal. Um, yeah. Because I mean, he never lost consciousness. He never had any symptoms of concussion. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, got him sewed up. Um, and then the conversation around, you know, what is your injury and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on, on the walk over to the truck, it was already this despair of, you know, my tour's over and he'd had a hard year the year before. Mm-hmm. So just getting to the tour was brutal, huge and yeah. then first stage to be down. So, um, you know, we 
I, I kept just telling him, look, let's wait, wait and see, wait, let's just see what the injury is. And so then we're able to look at it and say, okay, well, this is stable. The fracture is not going to get any worse, mm-hmm. no matter how hard you race or how hard you pull on the bars or anything else. Like it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we talked about the muscular component and all that. And basically said, look, this, this is safe to race with. Hmm. That doesn't mean you have to do it. Right. Right. Like the first determination is it safe or not? Because if it's not, I'm going to pull you. I don't care how much you want to race. Yep. Um, and that's and always. So uh, real quick to that, what would be an unsafe, mildly similar injury or maybe, a, you know, a totally different injury where you would say, no, I need to remove you outside of concussion. Uh, what's an orthopedic injury where you're like, no, this is just stupid. So like a, a, a displaced clavicle fracture where you really yeah. can't use that shoulder, yep. right? Yep. Um, for the scapula, which is the shoulder blade, mm-hmm. um, if it was a fracture to the body of the scapula itself, mm-hmm. which is the big wing part, sure. the spine, what he fractured is a, a little ridge that runs along the, the back of that. Yep. Um, but if it was a fracture to the body itself and and had some displacement there, again, it's, you know, pulling on it may start to, pulling on the bars and doing so, it may start to make that fracture bigger and bigger and take it from being stable to unstable, possibly needing surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the whole idea of, can you even handle the bike? So yeah. like with a, with yeah. a displaced clavicle fracture, one, it's going to hurt like hell. You're not going to want to be on the bike. But two, if you decide you want to be, you can't maneuver the bike. Sure. And that's dangerous yeah, for you and dangerous. certainly everybody else in the Peloton. 100%. Um, and so that's where we landed with Lawson is, you know, this injury is safe. Let's see how you do on the bike. Because at the time, he could barely lift his arm up. Yeah. The muscles were just all uh, just clamped down, guarding. Mm-hmm. And so then the, the the strategy is, well, let's do a lot of muscular work, um, massage, chiropractic. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Rabin, our chiropractor, is a magician. Sure. I mean. I think that's probably the exact term that Lawson used. Is it? Yeah. He's, um, he's. It just did a fantastic job. And so if we can get some mobility in that shoulder and get it to the point where he can ride safely, mm-hmm. then then we go out and take the start line with no expectation, but to get to the start line and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even that stage two before the start of the race, put him on a trainer, kind of had him you know rock side to side, see what he could do, see what kind of motion he had. Could he get stuff out of his pocket? Oh, you know, yeah. Just could kinda, he? Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, impressive. it was... Okay. Um, you know, it would tend to get tighter and less range of motion over the course of a stage. Uh-huh. But I mean, he was in a place where we felt it was reasonable that he could continue safely. Yep. Um, and that was a, that just became a day-to-day decision. You know, I told him this type of injury, um, it's, it's kind of like a broken toe or a broken rib mm-hmm. where like yeah. if you're a, a broken <laughs> toe sounds really, um, really small and of little consequence. Yeah. But if you're a marathon runner, yeah. like that's, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's huge. Nobody's going to run a marathon or a broken toe. Right. And so this is kind of like, you know, people think of cyclists as being lower extremity athletes, but there's a lot of the upper extremity and shoulder that comes into play. And so for him, it was like having a broken toe and having to run on it because he's gripping the bike. He's constantly going side to side. You know, you're, you're activating that injured body part. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, it's it's not dangerous, but it's gonna hurt. And if it's something that you feel like you can push through and you want to push through, yeah, then let's see how it goes. Right on. So you're taking it day by day. Um, Lawson in that podcast talks about yeah the the amount of work that he spends with Matt Rabin, especially because he says you know outside of uh, eating, sleeping, and racing bike, he was on either the massage table or the table with Matt to to, to get that muscular work to to open it up because every day the range of motion would be restricted from the time he's asleep, uh, you know, wake up that morning, it's restricted. And then throughout the course of the day while racing, it becomes more and more restricted. It's, it's, it was so cool to see the progress, you know, from the sideline and, and having broken my scapula on stage one of the tour de France myself and, and, you know, being kindly asked to leave at the conclusion of that team time trial and knowing that there's a team time trial you know, because not every tour has one. And there's a team time trial early on, just like just like there was in my tour. What stage is your TTT? Four. Okay. So it was even earlier, right? I think I think it was three for, it was either three or five. I was going to say five, but okay. that's just the number that came to mind. So we'll go with don't five. Don't quote me. Now, I did have a separated shoulder, which uh, 
I think became quite a bit more restricting. Like I could, there's, yeah. I, I could, I could handle my bike just fine. There was no way I could reach my rear pocket. Yeah. Um, and then it was funny because we didn't realize I'd broke my scapula until I got back to the States and had better scans. Oh, but it, it really speaks to the level of support that, that Lawson had. I mean, I had nothing but, but sympathy and empathy for my teammates when, when I had busted mine, but I didn't, we didn't have a Cairo. Yeah. Our doctor, I mean, I say he was basically trying to escort me home because it's one one less person to care for throughout the race. Yeah. There's so much work. There's so much, again, chaos going on that even have one less rider is something of relief to this very unmotivated team doc that we had. That's um, a shame. It, it sucked. And, but it, but honestly, talking to Lawson, hearing about the support that you guys have and the, the team that you have there was so cool. And, and so you see it over the, the progress of his tour to get through not to get through that team time trial by the end of that stage he was on the front yanking it and he was yeah he, he contributed racing great and then you know the next big hiccup speed bump we'll call it which is a funny way to put it is the Roubaix stage <laughs> yeah and sure he's on the back tail gunning and it's hilarious to talk to him about how hard that was but given that it's a stage race Roubaix as opposed to a one day one day race like he soldiered through that and then it's like okay game you on know he was on the podium at Roubaix for a uh, was it juniors or U23? No way. Yeah. <laughs> so it just psyched me back. Yeah. That's, that's what we kept talking about on the ride there. I was like, yeah, oh, you've done this. Yeah. You've done it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just with one, one more complete scapula. So yeah, I mean, it was just, it was great to see that progress. And you know, his legs were obviously there. Uh, he goes on to do some pretty magnificent things with the, the, the velodrome in Texas and yeah, inspired a lot of people, which was awesome. Um, and, and, we were actually talking on the ride today. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned we're at Blackberry Farm. We're at the Blackberry Farm Pro-Am Classic, mm-hmm. which is there's a handful of uh, retired cyclists, retired pro cyclists, and a bunch of amateurs that are trying to keep up with y'all. And uh, we were talking in a group that I was with about what a cool story that was with Lawson and and how, from an American standpoint, so many people rallied behind him and yeah. kind of you know, just everything that came from that. And then what I said was, you know, that was awesome. And and what I want to come from that, like from a bigger standpoint is, you know, that was overcoming. What will be cool is in the years in the future, people know him. I mean, he's a hugely talented cyclist, right? He was Lantern Rouge. He had an amazing story and he finished with this injury a lot because of his talent. Mm -hmm. Um, but now what I look forward to is him, you know, having big results and people being like, oh, I remember that guy, you know, the casual cycling fan. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, often Lantern man. Rouge, often Lantern Rouge has a unique story, but it's typical of being the person who has been on the front of the peloton the most, you know, yeah, uh, as a percentage of the race. And then, you know, obviously they're shelled at the back when, when the big time differences are taking place. It's less often because they've had uh, an incident like, like Lawson had. Right. So yeah, I mean he's he was brought to the tour to be one of Rigo's guys in the mountain, and and you know Lawson is a prolific cyclist. He's a he's a great guy. He's so well spoken. He's humble. He's he's respective of the sport and of his his teammates. And yeah, I think he's <laughs> what he did in that tour, what he did throughout the tour, and post facto, you know the the raising funds, he's inspired a lot of cyclists. Yeah, and for sure, you know, sure we're not. We were talking about this last night, sort of the future of the future of American cycling. And yeah, we're not putting American cyclists on the podium at the world's biggest races. We're not uh, winning the world's biggest races as American cyclists. But it's funny talking to American cyclists who's been through that routine because I think we do see so much progress and so much promise for the future. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I mean, to to even do what these guys are doing and, and, you know, you know, it's not in the U.S. It's, cycling is not is not baseball or football or you know it, it doesn't it as a kid unless you happen to grow up you know if with a certain set of circumstances that introduce you to the sport you don't it's just never really on your radar mm-hmm. right and so what's cool about how this played out is you know Lawson started riding at this velodrome and potentially this whole story puts together a place where more and more kids find out about cycling and potentially have the chance to go to the highest level of the sport. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's without that, 
without that publicity and and kind of sponsorship from the greater public, these things don't happen. Yeah. Um, yep. So I think it, it goes a long way toward that problem. And we were also talking last night about would <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it. Would we as as ambassadors for the sport, would we want to put our own children through the through the protocol of trying to become a professional cyclist? I'm going to ask the exact same question to you right now. Yeah. You have two kids, a son and a daughter. Three. Three kids. That's my apologies. Yes. One little time. Um, Two of them can walk and talk. One of them. That's right. Is new to this world. Um, Would you want your kids to become professional cyclists? Knowing, knowing the side of the sport that you have seen and just how, you know, it's not purely podiums and and living in villas in in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think on the, this was a panel question last night, and it was, you know, Christian Vandeveld, George Hincappy, you, Craig Lewis, Allison Tetrick, and me, who's the odd one out there, not a professional athlete. With, um, with the most, you definitely have the most degrees up on stage. Well, most letters by my name. Some of those are <laughs> fake. Uh, <laughs> um, no, so you know, I think I come at it from a different way. But the the opinion of the panel was the full spectrum. Right? It was. It was from one end to the other. And for me, it was, you know, I really think that there's a lot of, um, when people look at cycling and the lives that you guys live as pro cyclists, they see the uh, NBC coverage with the castles and the vineyards and, you know, beautiful races that even if they're hard, you know, the the winner is the one interviewed, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was hard, but it was beautiful and it was fantastic race. And, um, so the, it's romanticized as it should be. Even to the degree of a guy like Lawson. Oh yeah. People would almost yeah, be yeah. like, Oh man, he's on TV so much and he's freaking crushing it. And I want to be Lawson. It's like, right. The dude has a broken shoulder. Right. Folks. Right. And it, it I mean, it is at that level when it's televised and marketed and it's entertainment, mm-hmm. right? Any sport is. And that's absolutely. So it's perfectly okay. In, in my opinion to rom- romanticize it like that, but you have to take that away when you're answering this question and say, okay, what does it really look like day to day? And it's not castles. It's, it's <laughs> Kyriad hotels in France that are, are rough to say the least. <laughs> it's constant travel. It's being away from family. Um, it is, it's a hard life, yeah. you know, it's, it's training. It's, Probably being sore it's, a lot of the time. Three sixty five, twenty four seven. Yeah, and you live it. You live this lifestyle. You are perpetually yeah. starved. You Which are. also, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. No. But so my point was, unless you're really hungry, but that's true. <laughs> um, you can't have Blackberry Farm beer as often. <laughs> no, we are we are sipping a very tasty Blackberry Farm Farmhouse Classic Saison. Thank you very much for making wonderful. You gotta beverages. get some sponsorship now. Well, after doing what I did last night. <laughs> I mean, as we talk about the, the bringing children into the sport of cycling, folks, I've never lost a shotgunning competition, um, which you should only start doing when you're 21 years old. But my record continues having won another one last night. It so. was impressive. Thank you. Thank I was m- maybe <laughs> a third of the way through mine. George is still working on his. I think he is. He shotgunned an eighth of a beer. His, yeah, his was still mostly full when mm-hmm. he held it up as if he was finished. Mm-hmm. but. But we, so, know, we know about George and his competitive tendencies. Exactly. He keeps them in, in other places. So, um, no. So I think going back to the question, yeah. it's, it really, if, if my kids wanted to be, and my son wants to be a pro cyclist, Absolutely. seven years Love old, talking he's all about it. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if he had a, a true understanding and a full picture of what that entails, the good and the bad, um, I'd be right there to help him in any way that I could and support him. Um, I think of it, the same way I do a lot of professions, whether it's medicine or law or engineering or whatever, like it, it is not easy mm-hmm. to get where you want to be. A lot of those things are romanticized, right? Yeah. When, when you're starting to look at what you want to be when you grow up. Yep. Um, and so I think ultimately there, there needs to be some understanding or at least appreciation for that fact before you start down that pathway. Um, and so, so for me, it's not a yes or a no, it's, it's, kind of a conditional yes yep and yeah uh, hinging on the education understanding what what okay hudson this is what it's going to entail enjoy it as you're going through it i mean it's such a 
is cycling a means to an end or is it sort of, are you embracing the process? Are you embracing the means unto itself? Uh, so when you had some amazing experiences, I'm sure like, Oh my word. Yeah. You lived in Europe. You went to amazing places. You had, Mm -hmm. you had, you know, teammates that you wouldn't have met otherwise. You, I mean, there's, there's a lot of fantastic things that surely happen from being a pro cyclist. Like I don't want to paint the picture that it's all just really (laughs) dull and and, and difficult. Um, But I think there needs to be an appreciation of the fact that it's, it's a hard way to make a buck. It is. I, I've called it on this podcast and in, in the real world. I mean, I call it a blue collar sport. And by that, I mean, you know, are not paid football, baseball, basketball, hockey salaries. Um, you really got to grind and, and, you know, we not to overstate it because I think the the previous podcast being aired is one with Bonnie Ford where we talked about the discrepancy between male and female pro cycling and the salaries there. I mean, you know, that's they're enormous um, from a financial side, especially. So, you know, that said, yeah, we're it's a it's a lifestyle that you choose. It's a um, it's foreign in a lot of ways to American cyclists or sorry, to American, well, to American athletes in general, but, but you're going up against the likes of traditional European cycling countries where the folks have been racing since they're single digits, since they're six years old, eight years old, 10 years old. And, and, and their national support system looks a lot different than ours. hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, there's, there's academies that they go into when they're, when they're young and. and oh, right. I mean, I think that's a, such a fascinating thing. I mean, the, England, Australia, New Zealand, Belgium, Belgium. We have the American, what the American presidential, uh, achievement thing oh. in PE. It's like, how many pull-ups can you do? Oh, and yeah. you sort of, I think you know, it's you one score now that you a, it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you can do a pull-up. You touched the pull-up bar and you did a, you did a sit up. Good work. We just have a different, such a different appreciation for sort of sports in general, because you go to those other countries and they're vetting you for their national system. They're yeah. saying, oh, you you happen to have a really strong upper body. You're going to be a gymnast. You At have a great eight. VO2. You're going to become a professional cyclist. Yeah. Um, and there's problems with that too. Oh my God. Like I should <laughs> hope sure. so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the point is that it's a very different starting point yeah. for Americans and, and you know anybody who grows up in a, a system like ours versus one of those where it's talent ID in yeah. elementary school. Uh-huh. So how about... You are a physician and, and early on in your pursuit of becoming a doctor, you're also, you know, quite, uh, you know, dissuaded by that profession. Like, yeah, I imagine, let me put words in your mouth. I imagine it's similar. Like, would you want to, uh, direct your kids towards medicine? Yeah, I think, um, I think the same applies. Um, and honestly, I think I tend more toward the no than the yes, probably because of a bias of I've been through it. Yeah. Right. And so, um, I, I think that tends, tends to be the case again, regardless of profession, like your parents go through something, they're like, I don't want you to do that. And you, it's great. It served us well, but you do your thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I look at where I've ended up in medicine and it's a a pretty niche position. Mm -hmm. You're working as a, a a medical director for a, a world tour team and then having a practice that is um, just pretty unique. Uh, it, it's, you know, if I were to start over and go back to medical school residency, knowing that this is where I wanted to end up, mm-hmm. I think that it would be unlikely to happen. Hmm. Um, just because there were a series of, there's, there's luck involved and there's people that you meet and, you know, nobody's self-made. We're all far from it. You, you meet folks all along the way that help you get to wherever you happen to be. Um, and so, you know, with, with a recognition and a respect of the fact that I love what I do today, mm-hmm. I also see what a, the way that most doctors end up working and practicing. Um, and there's a huge number that love what they do. There's a huge number that don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. and ultimately I want my kids to really have a passion for what, what they do. So if it turned out that, yeah, they had a passion for medicine and that's where they wanted to go and their eyes were open to what that looks like, go for it. Right. Well, yeah, no better person to educate them on what that might be all about. Um, I mean, let's take a, take a slightly different direction. You got the Hippocratic Oath, which as a doctor says, in effect, you're going to do no harm. Um, do you know it? 
It's one of the oldest oaths of this planet. Sure. Yeah. I could not repeat it to you today. Okay. Am I, am I correct in that it basically says do no harm? It says first do no harm. That's how it starts. Okay. Um, I do know that part. Which is interesting in the, in the line of professional cycling as a team physician, because I mean, I think the tour is such a unique example in that if you are severely injured, if you have a broken scapula in the tour, you want nothing more than to continue because as I've talked about in the past, it's, it's a culmination of your entire sporting career. Like yeah. the tour is the tour and this is why you ride a bike and this is why you started riding a bike. In other races, which may have slightly less uh, importance or precedence, if you have an injury, yeah, you're basically going to be like looking for the hospital to get care, seeing the doctor and, and on your way home. We had this talk. Like if this has been the, the tour of the Algarve, yeah. like, no way, go home. Sure. Right? Like, and I can say that. I don't think that race exists <laughs> anymore. No, it, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not throwing anything under the bus. Insert any right. bike race outside of the Tour de France and yes, people would be going home. Right. And, and I would probably say, you know, you know what? Go home and get healthy. Uh-huh. The tour's coming, right? Sure. So, so again, that's the end point. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, how? Let's let's talk about a slightly lesser injury. If it's a whole lot of road rash, and and people are, or maybe the the answer is already self evident. Uh, I mean, it, I guess the question is, how do you see a patient's? Um, I mean, an athlete, a patient's health, and and direct them in the right direction. Yeah. Um, or maybe the answer is, well, it's outside of the tour, if you have a, a pretty relatively horrific injury, you're going home. Yeah, I think it depends on the, the athletes and the patient's goals. So as a pro athlete, mm-hmm. you, I mean, it's your job. Your yeah. money comes from this. Your contracts are predicated on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, I, I, I'll admittedly say that you know, I'm more inclined to keep an athlete in the game Again, when it's safe, when we've made that initial determination that this is not causing more damage, um, you know, more inclined to keep them in the game than the accountant who does recreational cycling and just crashed in a Cat 4 race, right? Um, <laughs> I don't mean but, to laugh, but yes. I, no, I'm but, laughing because I think I think professional athletes, professional cyclists have such a high threshold for pain independent of, of training. I mean, like they know how to crash and race with square footage of skin loss yeah. and push through it as if it's nothing. Yeah. Whereas the cat four is, and with all a hundred percent due respect, like, yes, they have a job and a family to report to and all these things, but it's so funny to watch like the aftermath of a crash on an amateur, some sort of group ride. Yeah. Because it takes ages. If that was a bike race, boom, up and at them, go. Yeah. 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 No. And I think, so, I mean, that's a long way of saying it depends on the goals of the person. Right. Um, I do think going back to the kind of the foundation of the question in the Hippocratic Oath, that I think the Hippocratic Oath kind of sets up a a false um, basis on which to look at this. It says, you know, first do no harm as if it's a binary decision, like I will do harm or not harm. <laughs> um, and a lot of what we do is, I mean, like like with Lawson, it's, it's probability, uh-huh. right? So we're looking at, okay, is this likely to be, a, a safe injury or not. Yep. yep, um, yep, yep. Is and it's not putting other people at danger. Way, right. Sure. Yeah. Like, but we make our best determination. Yes. With the hope that we're falling in the athlete's favor, but it's not like we're, we look at it and we, somebody hands us a checklist and like harm, no harm. Oh, I remember this one. <laughs> I know which one to check. Um, so it's, you know, it's a lot more difficult than that. But at the end of the day, for me, the, the the patient's health in a in that type of setting is first and foremost. However, you take a rider out of the Tour de France who maybe wakes up the mo- next morning and says, "Hey, I don't feel that bad. Like, but, cool. I'm, but I'm out now." Yeah. The mental anguish, or even if they wake up feeling bad, but they're like, "I think I could have continued." The mental anguish and the blow to their their psychological health mm-hmm. is real, mm-hmm. and that. So it's not just what does the shoulder look like, right? Um, yeah. And that gets kind of weighty, I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the cyclist, the athlete knows <laughs> knows what hinges on it. And so, sure, I mean, they, they have their fingers crossed, toes crossed. They want nothing more than in a major injury to be able to be allowed to continue. So, yeah, to do yeah, the job. Get, yeah. Um, how about... As riders, we have our favorite races. 
Um, we have our favorite countries to race in and so on and so forth. How about you? What's, what are your favorite races to be a team doc? What are your favorite countries to be in? Yeah. Where do you like to travel to? I love two of the Basque country. Uh-huh. Love it. Uh, it's a beautiful race. I know riders don't necessarily love it. It's hard. <laughs> it's steep as hell and <laughs> twice as wet. But it's beautiful countryside, amazing food, great people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd do two of the Basque country every year if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like anything in Spain. I love going to Spain. Um, the the Giro, anything in Italy too. Uh, Torino, I love yep. Torino. Um, you stay in these little hotels. They're often family owned. The food's amazing, even if the hotel isn't. The food's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the tour. Um, we had this <laughs> conversation today on the ride too. Yeah, it's um, it's good and bad. Like it's. Like when things are going good for the team, like last year we were second place, the tour is awesome. Yeah. It's yeah, so yeah, awesome yeah, because yeah. everything's just inflated and magnified at the tour. And when they're not going well, just the, the stress and the the microscope you're under, um, I mean, that just makes everything a little bit more stressful and, and worse. You know, with like with Lawson's injury this year, the number of, of articles that were written and uh, interviews and all sorts of stuff and, and people giving their opinion, which is great, but it's often not based on the facts that we have, you know, and then they're passing judgment on, we should be doing this or shouldn't be doing that. You know, it, it, you try to like block it all out, but mm-hmm. some of the more inflammatory ones, you're like, wait, wait, what a minute. What, yeah. what, what, what is that? Yeah. 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 Um, Everyone's got an opinion. So, the, so the tour is, I definitely want to keep doing it, but it's, it's a love hate as I think it is with, Probably anyone who does Yeah, uh, with two, mostly under my belt. Yes, very much a love-hate relationship. Um, and I, I don't think we can do enough justice explaining what these petite French hotels are all about. Oh. You know, I describe them as, even if you go to, to your standard dingy Motel 6, Hotel 8, Best Western in America, you get a big bed. You get a big room. The the toilet flushes you can't touch both walls uh on opposite ends of the room with 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 your hands extended in either direction there's probably not a lot of mold in the shower probably, probably. not no no you don't have to remove furniture in order to put two people into the rooms yeah um i mean these french hotels are are abysmal and it's so funny because the french culture the french cycling culture is so ingrained and and so it's yep you show up at the campanile and it's time to put up a you know three different teams and it's uh, it's very routine, which is just comical to me. So, so to American cycling fans, go go to any French race and just the race is great, the start and the finish are great. But go go check out the infrastructure that the teams have to undergo at these. Yeah, and imagine recovering one night, like uh-huh. going out doing a crazy hard ride, uh-huh. and then going somewhere that has no air conditioning. And, you know, linens that may or may not have been washed between the last person that was slept in there. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's bad. But I'll tell you, I mean, there, I don't want to throw the whole thing under the bus because there's some sure. beautiful hotels, some beautiful, like. One out of you know, 20 not, you not have in five that cool villa. You do get some nice ones. Yes. But there's also some that are maybe not fancy, but that are family owned and like they try really hard and they take a lot of pride in it. And it, it may be two star mm-hmm. out of five, but like. They're really trying, and that I think is a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. right? It's but it's the it's the big chains that they kind of throw you in that are really the red roof in, yeah. It's, or worse, it's the trying worse. aspect. It's yeah. like no, we don't we don't even try. We don't care. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Which is why I often describe it, and and I mean this literally as much as I do figuratively. It's overcooked pasta and undercooked chicken. Yeah, and that happens. And like and red they sauce. talk. Yeah, get, they talk about the pasta. Like, what do you mean more, more pasta? We cooked it yesterday. We don't have time to cook more pasta now. Whereas you'd make the leap to Spain makes great food. Italian food, bike race food is exceptional. It is. I mean, yeah, you want good pasta? Holy moly. Go talk to La Nona. Yeah. All right. Fresh well, veggies. We've, we've taken up a great deal of your time, but I want to wrap up with three questions. You are a cyclist yourself. We are sitting in one of the, one of the coolest hidden pockets here in the Smoky Mountains uh, in the United States. What is... It's a three-part question. What is your favorite place you have ridden? What is one place you would like to ride a bike? And with whom would you really like to go out on a bike ride? Oh, interesting. Okay. So 
I'm fortunate. Now, I don't, I don't get to ride on many of these trips that I take with the team, right? Very few. There, I've, I've spent some time at the Classics where, um, you know, I'll be in Belgium for six weeks and I have a bike because there's, you know, race day and then two days off and then race day. And so getting to ride over there, um, ridden in Girona, France, Italy, um, ridden some amazing places, but I truly love getting to come home and ride here. Ooh, um, good answer. And that's, you know, I, I don't think that's hyperbole. I mean, you've been on the roads around here. It's, uh-huh. it's probably similar to Vermont a little bit in terms yeah, of the, the yeah. kind of the rolling green hills, low trafficked, um, yeah. very verdant, uh, 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 yeah, basically trees and grass and, and green everywhere. Yeah. Mountains. Uh-huh. I mean, we did a 30 minute climb day, 35 minute yeah. that was, you know, so you've got all kinds of stuff to do here. I absolutely love it. Um, okay. Great so th- this is my favorite place to ride for sure. Um, so yeah, what now one place you would like to ride that you have never been or never, never ridden? Um, I think, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, two things come to mind. One is like the, the Scandinavian area. Very um, nice. Have you worked those races? I've not, I've never been up there. And so that, that is high on the list, but New Zealand, I think would top that. Um, never been there. Mm-hmm. Just seen pictures. Looks amazing. Um, so yeah, I'd say New Zealand. All right. And then be it Scandinavia, be it New Zealand, be it right here in your backyard. Who is one person you, you really want to go on a bike ride with? All right. Let's see. Um, Hypotheticals I've, I've never, are the hardest. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I've never thought about this question before. So the, the one that actually comes to mind, um, is John Kerry. Ooh, yes. So, I mean, so he stopped by the, the bus at the tour last year, the year before, uh-huh. um, and got a huge amount of respect for the guy. Um, just an amazing American. And then hearing him give a pep talk to the team um, and knowing his love for the bike, yeah. you know, if, if he didn't drop me, I think it would be <laughs> the, the, the stuff that he has to say and the stories to tell and I think it'd be fascinating. I'd jump on that one. That's a good one. That's a very good one. Plus, I imagine you would be right there side by side or perhaps dropping him, but the man probably puts out a big draft. He's a tall individual. Yeah, he is. I appreciate a tall cyclist. Yeah. Being 6'2 and change myself. Well, Kevin, doctor, what are the, what's the team call you? Dr. Sprouse? Doc. I get a lot of doc. doc. I think it's a cycling thing. Yeah. What's up, doc? Yeah. Um, Dr. Kevin Sprouse, doc, Kevin... I thank you very much for your time. Um, do you have anything for me? I'm not trying to wrap that up. No, no. Quickly. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. It was right fun. on. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we got one more day riding, so let's go out there and let's go out there and enjoy it. Yeah, set that draft for me. Absolutely. All six foot two and a change. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ted. Thank you.